Hi, welcome to The Heavy with Andrew and Don, where we cover a large range of rock and metal topics for the casual listener. I'm your host, Don Sutherland. With me, as always, my brother, Andrew. What's up, dirtbags? Yeah, I'm uh, Andrew, you're a little hungover today, right? Uh, yeah, I'm a little under the weather. I'm starting to feel better, though. It was a pretty rough morning. <laughs> getting through it. That's, that's good. I just wanted to make sure we're on the level about that. And uh, also, I guess, welcome back. This is season three, first episode of the third season so it's it's good to be back took a few months off uh yeah we did took a few months off yeah, <laughs> yeah i nice have a little bit of a break and enjoy the summer a bit and then get back down to it now that the uh weather's getting a little colder yeah especially because we're in uh alberta canada where it gets like minus 35 which is i think the same fahrenheit if you're american but we are also nominated uh over the summer for a Canadian Podcast Award, too, for Outstanding Music Series. So that was exciting as well. Wait, what's the status of that, anyway? We don't know the results yet, but just being nominated was very nice. Yeah, it's exciting to get some some recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, okay, that's enough preamble, I guess. Andrew, what are we talking about today? Uh, today, we're going to do a little history on uh, Motley Crue and their role in the early 80s hair metal scene. Oh, sweet. All right, let's get into it. crew so just before we get into the you know nuts and bolts of that i uh, just want to do a, a, a quick recap of what i did during the time off so like, i actually went to a few shows that we can i can just touch on real quick so i went to see the yeah, band sure. cradle of filth they're uh, like a british black metal band uh, it was a pretty solid show they're really theatrical they have lots you know costumes and like cool stage imagery and stuff uh, i really enjoyed that one and they were they were opened for by a, a female-fronted band called Frail, like a doom metal band kind of. They were they're okay. Uh, I also went to see a band called Avatar. Uh, I believe they're Swedish. Uh, they're very theatrical and entertaining. Uh, they, the opening band for them was a band called Light the Torch, which featured uh, a singer named Howard Jones, who used to be the singer for Kill Switch Engage. Oh, and, sweet. Uh, he's an excellent live performer. Like he's got great energy and, and a wicked live voice. So I, I highly recommend checking those guys out. Right. And then uh, thirdly, I uh, went to see Motley Crue's uh, stadium tour at Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton. So that's uh, right. kind of related yeah. to today's topic, obviously. Yeah, they were with uh, what, Heart and Poison as well. Uh, Joan Jett too, right? No, it was uh, uh, Def Leppard. Was, so Motley Crue and Def Leppard were pretty much the co-headliners. Like they were the two main bands. And then Joan Jett opened and Poison was second on. Okay, that's what it was. All right. Uh, probably, in my opinion, I would say that Brett Michaels and Poison put on the best, most energetic, fun performance. Uh, Joan Jett was also really good. And uh, Def Leppard came on right before Motley Crue, and they, uh, they actually sounded pretty good. Def Leppard sounded like Def Leppard. They did a good job. Mm-hmm. They played all their hits, and a lot of people were there for them. They never stopped touring, so they better still have a routine going. Yeah, I know. They, they sounded pretty good. Motley Crue live, to me, was a bit of a disappointment, uh, just because... A lot of it was Vince Neil, and, and I, you know I have a lot of respect for him, like for what he's done in the past and stuff. So I'm not gonna like shit on him too much. The guy's been through a lot, and yeah, yeah. you know he's, it seems like he's just kind of mailing it in now, though. Like he didn't really, he said he was a little off in all the songs, and and his voice mm-hmm. just didn't have like, you know, it never had it was like maybe not a super powerful live voice anyway, but it's he's definitely had better days. Yeah, that's that's been sort of a topic of discussion 
outside of even like metal circles because he's had a couple of shows i guess on this tour where it's really his voice is really let out and yeah people are like kind of laughing at him but it's like he said like he's been around for so long and he's trying i guess maybe there's only so much he can do now yeah i mean it was still a fun show to go to and and the rest of the band sounded great like you know tommy on the drums and yeah. mick and uh nikki like they all sounded instrumentally they sounded awesome uh like i said i was hoping i wasn't expecting it because i'd heard some reviews already but i was hoping for yeah. a bit stronger performance but yeah, overall it was a lot of fun anyway so that's cool but I maybe want to do a show on Motley Crue because uh, I'm a big fan of their their earlier stuff and their history. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw I went to one show since we took the break, and it was the Beach Boys. Oh, nice! Uh, <laughs> the Beach Boys without Brian Wilson. So it was uh, two of the original Beach Boys, and then just a bunch of session musicians who did pretty much all of the heavy lifting. But yeah. it was still good. I mean, they've they've clearly handpicked guys that sound like the Beach Boys. So it was almost like a cover band with two 85 year olds in the middle no they sounded good yeah. sounded really good yeah i mean we probably won't ever do a show on the beach boys in this podcast but uh they yeah. still put out a lot of <laughs> a lot of good music some some real classics so uh, moving on i guess we'll get to yeah into motley crew we'll just go through kind of a chronological history of them i'm not gonna you know touch on all the details because there's some great references if you want to get really really deep into the the crew's yeah. history you know like the book the dirt and then they made a movie out of it. That's it's a pretty detailed history of of their early days and all the crap they went through and stuff. Yeah, was the and show any good? Did. I never actually watched the show. I don't think I finished the movie. I mean, I had read the book already, so it's not like a lot of people would probably be more familiar with the movie than the book. Mm-hmm. But I read the book like years ago when it first came out, and it was great. That's one the, the one that's different perspectives, right? It has yeah stories from all of the different sides. It's it's funny because they'll tell a story from. Sometimes all four perspectives of each guy, like all different guys, and, right. and they each tell the story a little different way. They all remember it a different way. It's like, it's hilarious, man. Like they'll just contradict really... each other. Straight <laughs> up. Yeah. That's kind of fun though. You see that the maybe someone was just completely drugged up for it, or they all just had completely different motivations. Oh yeah, I bet like their memories are probably foggy for a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, Nikki Six, basically the the leader of the band, he writes most of the songs. Uh, right. He's the bassist. Uh, and then Tommy Lee, they started the band in January 1981 after Nikki left a glam rock band called London. And uh, to touch on London really briefly, they actually featured some notable musicians at some point in their history, including Blackie Lawless of Wasp, who's come up several times already in our podcast. Yeah. And also Izzy Stradlin of Guns N' Roses was in that band for a period. Oh, so cool. Some so big like names a, there. Uh, what, do they, what do they call it? A springboard? Springboard, I think that's the word for it. It's like a springboard band. Yeah, like the musicians that went through there that end up being like much bigger in other bands than they were there. Yeah, that's where, that's where they got their yeah. start. Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool anyway. Uh, so the first guitarist they had, a guy named Greg Leon, he quit early on and they subsequently found Mick Mars through an ad in a magazine called The Recycler. It looks like it was just a, a magazine for classified ads in LA. And I think it still exists, but more in a digital form. But the uh, the ad actually read, a loud, rude, aggressive guitar player available. And uh, <laughs> they, they kind of sold them, and Tommy ended up calling him and left his number. Or Funny. That reminds him. me of uh, the Black Sabbath story, how they met Ozzy Osbourne. They had an ad. I'm pretty sure it just said, like, tough singer wanted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he showed up. Well, I mean, th- those guys all worked in, like, factories and, like, uh, abattoirs and crap back then. In, like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Birmingham or whatever. So yeah. I guess he probably fit the bill. Mm-hmm. 
the uh, the band was rounded out with vocalist Vince Neil. So I, uh, Tommy had actually gone to school with Vince Vince Neil, so he knew him from high school, and it took right. him a while, but he eventually convinced him to join the band. So the the uh, the name Motley Crue it actually evolved from something that guitarist Mick Mars had come up with in his previous band, like a, a comment he made or whatever. Okay. There's a story about it in the uh, in the dirt. They right. kind of describe like uh, like I said, I'm not gonna get too far into the details with the stuff. There's just too much. Yeah, there's a lot that went on. Yeah, oh definitely. But, but yeah, there's a like lot I, that's still going on too. Because Tommy Lee just I don't know if that's coming up what he what he posted online. So I don't want to ruin it if it's coming well, up. Well, if, if I don't get to it, we can touch on it at the end. Okay, I'd rather not touch on it. Yeah. I, mean, I think <laughs> I found out about it at, at work, and was like, ah, I'm just gonna disconnect from the work Wi-Fi because I, I'm just I have to at least check it out. That's I'm some NSFW curious. stuff, eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, I don't want them to know that I looked at it, but I kind of do, just knowing <laughs> that it's there. I might as well just say it now. Tommy Tommy Lee posted his his dick on. Uh, Twitter and Instagram. I think it got taken down from Instagram. Pretty sure yeah, you can yeah. still see it on Twitter. So if you want to look at it. For the record, I did not look at it. <laughs> uh, if you are on the fence, you're not going to get anything out of it. It's uh, it's just a regular penis. <laughs> I don't. I didn't feel like I gained anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't imagine you, you would. But <laughs> no, no. And, and, and we digress. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, early on in the band's history, uh, Nikki, Vince, and Tommy, they lived in a house together. It was uh, a constant stream of uh, women, booze, and drugs. And it's very vividly described in the band's book, The Dirt. So uh, Mick actually lived somewhere else with his girlfriend. He didn't live in the house with them. He was a few years older than the rest of the band, and he was already kind of growing out of that or over that type of lifestyle. Right. But uh, Nikki, he actually received an official notice of violation from the L.A. Department of Health Services for all the garbage accumulated at the house. So it got pretty, pretty gross. He got a municipal <laughs> warning, not just yeah, the, the landlord. The city like, cited him. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But uh, Early on when Mick first started jamming with Nikki and Tommy, Nikki had already written a few songs and they would end up recording some of those songs like uh, the song Stick to Your Guns, a song called Toast of the Town and Public Enemy Number One. All right. So this is like very early days, like some of their first songs yeah. they, they did. So uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the dirt, in the book, Tommy recounts that Mick had seen Vince performing at Starwood and he wanted him to sing for their band for his stage presence and because the girls loved him. Okay. Uh, I guess that was like a big, big thing for them, which I mean, a lot of guys go into, you know, rock music for the girls. So, yeah. And also you think about it, if you get a lot of girls going to your shows, the guys are going to want to go too. So you end up with like a, you know, a double the size of crowd than you normally would have. Right. Yeah. So. I was like uh, Kevin Costner and his band, which is surprisingly not bad. But there was a clip of him performing, uh, and he's uh, says he like apologizes to all the guys whose girlfriends dragged them there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like he's apologizing, but also, hey, they're like doubling your crowd, so that's a good strategy. Yeah, definitely. Well, in rock music back in the '80s, a lot of the scenes were primarily male. This is one of the, that's one of the things that helped you know hair metal explode at that time, right? Is, mm-hmm. is increasing the and why Motley Crue was so popular because it, they uh, had such a, a big fan base because of that yeah um, makes sense the uh the first song that nikki wrote to fin- fit vince's uh voice uh because it had a pretty distinctive voice was the song Livewire, which ended up being the first song on their first album too fast for love and it's a right. freaking classic like it's one of my favorite opening riffs ever in like rock music i'm hoping it's on the playlist later because molly crew is one of the bands that i i haven't really listened to any tracks deeper than like the 
the top hits. So this will be yeah. interesting. Yeah, I guess I can't say a song is one of my favorite opening riffs ever and not put it on the playlist. So a little, little foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. There's, there's so many great stories in the dirt. And uh, like I was saying before, the best feature of the book is how the band members will recall the events very differently from each other. So like Tommy was, for instance, Tommy talks about how he was trying to recruit Vince and how Vince had been trying to get a hold of him, but he had washed his jeans and Tommy's number was in the jeans. Oh, but no. then when they talked to Vince about it, he's like, it was a straight up lie. He never washed his clothes or wore jeans and he knew exactly where Tommy lived if he ever wanted to talk to him. He just didn't want to <laughs> see him? Yeah, he just purposely was not calling him back. Oh, but uh, yeah, I mean, eventually Tommy persevered and he ended up joining the band, obviously. But Yeah, it worked uh, out. Just some fun facts. Uh, Vince was already shooting cocaine well before Nikki and Tommy started, u- started using needles. Even though uh, Nicky's pretty famous for for ODing later on, yeah, he's he's the one that's on known heroin. as that. Wasn't he the one that died for like, like eight minutes two, or something? Two minutes or something, or yeah, I, yeah. I'll talk about that later in here. I can't remember how long it was, but yeah, he like was officially dead for a period of time. Right. <laughs> in uh, November 1981, the band's debut, "Too Fast for Love," was originally released on uh, a label called Leather Records, which was owned by their original manager, a guy named Alan Kaufman, and uh, it would be the only release uh, that this label would release. Okay. So it was it was created just for that album pretty much. So uh, the the album itself has kind of a raw punk sort of feel to it, and the production is really rough, but the songs are actually super catchy, and the the whole album is a lot of fun. Like really, really okay. like fresh. They just seem like a hungry band, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess. It, well, I mean, it sounds like they have a lot of energy if they're like that kind of party animal style, even before the band starts. So if it yeah, translates yeah, that- into the music. Definitely early on, a, a ton of potential, a lot of energy. Yeah. So when the uh, when Motley Crue played Edmonton back in 1982, it was their first time playing out of the U.S. And I guess they act, the, the band received uh, a bomb threat, and it was related to their third show at a club called Scandals. And it actually made the front page of the Edmonton Journal at the time. But in the end, it turned out to be a publicity stunt by their management. That's uh, not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, it got him. Got him for the eighties. Right? Yeah. yeah, for the for the eighties, like pre nine eleven. I guess it's, it's, it's like oh, crazy way stuff. Before, yeah, way before nine eleven, so it was yeah. a little bit. You could get away with stuff a little bit like that, like not anymore. Yeah. Obviously. And this is like before they were really a household name. Like they they weren't really big at the time, so this is them trying to get big, and it kind of put them yeah. on the radar. Yeah, that's a bold move. Pays off. Yeah. You know, kind of notorious, right? Uh, they they'd also been held up at Canadian Customs when their stage costumes were declared dangerous weapons. And, uh, and Vince was caught with a bag of porn magazines. <laughs> that wasn't allowed on Apparently. through customs. <laughs> Apparently not. Yeah. And uh, and Tommy also threw a TV out the hotel window in Edmonton, so they didn't like that oh. either. So. Uh, okay. Yeah, that one seems a little more standard. <laughs> Allegedly, they were kicked out of Canada at the time, but obviously they've been back to Canada quite a few times and to pretty great fanfare. Like they they tend to, I think they like playing here. Totally. Uh, the, the band's second album was called Shout at the Devil, and it was released in September 1983. And it featured the band's most consistently strong songwriting, uh, like at least from my, in my opinion, and like a lot of critical yeah. opinion. Uh, it was heavier, much better produced than the debut, mm-hmm. and it started to propel the band into more mainstream popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the time, with all the moral uproar over rock music in the 80s and like the PMRC and other groups, we've talked about that before. There was a, a lot of controversy due to the title and the title track and also the satanic imagery. But, ah, uh, he, yes. Yeah, classic. If you watch some interviews with Nikki back then, he explains that it, it wasn't so much of a religious reference of the devil, but a, 
the, using the devil as a metaphor for any oppressive authority figure, and then the fight against that authority or whatever. Right. The first two albums are both very consistent. Like the, almost every song is good on both albums. Or, okay, or like, those are the ones where they're. When you said they were very energetic, and that was them still, still kind of raw too. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Shadow of the Devil is a lot more polished, so it's not quite as raw. It, it definitely right. sounds a lot better produced, but the songwriting is really strong. Like they they aren't mailing it in yet, mm-hmm. which like you know, so to me, a lot of like the the later albums is a lot of throwaway tracks where it's just kind of filler between like the really good songs. The, a a lot of bands kind of get that routine where they just like they don't really require the effort, like you know, to to maintain the fan base. They've already got it, so they can kind of you know just. Coast coast by on a, a hit a year or something. Put out an album with a couple of decent singles, and then just go out and tour and play all you know their classics as long as they have enough songs that people love that they can play a set on, right? Yeah, or it becomes more about the lifestyle than just about the music or something. You know, you look at Def Leppard. Like Def Leppard, in, in my opinion, anyway, like they haven't really put out a good album since Pyromania, and like yeah. I don't think I'll take a lot of flack for that because people love Hysteria, but like they they really been mailing it in since. Since then, for me, like anyone who disagrees with me, go and read the lyrics to Hysteria. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's like the only songs I hear on the radio. Yeah. My job. Well, they're like, super. I, it's, it's their biggest selling album. It sounds. It sounds like. It sounds like if you had a bunch of scientists make a rock song, that's that's what those the Hysteria hits sound like to me. Like it, it feels like such a formula. Yeah, yeah, it, it really does. It's like they, they kind of knew what would work, and they just they, they followed that that formula. Like I said, mm-hmm. and now that you've shown yeah. me some of their older stuff, that's so much more passionate. Yeah, I I can't go back. Yeah, that, that's just an example, and I'm sure we could I'm sure we could find endless examples of bands that do the same thing. Or oh, quite a few. Absolutely. Uh, at the time, this was when MTV was starting to get big, so uh, the heavy rotation on MTV for Motley Crue really helped grow their popularity at the time. And the uh, the band really expanded their potential audience, like I was saying before, by appealing to both male and female audience. While right. in the past, the hard rock metal audiences have been primarily male, which I mm-hmm. obviously mentioned before. Yep. Uh, they toured with Ozzy in 1984 as the opener for his Bark at the Moon tour. This is when the uh, the infamous Ozzy snorting a line of ants event occurred. <laughs> ah. They talk about it in their book, In the Dirt. It's uh, pretty Wait, intense. Do you know what kind of ants? I, I do not. But, uh, okay. Ozzy was a wild man. Like he's like, <laughs> like Motley Crue is one of those bands that were well known for being out of control. And Ozzy was like, he would make them pause. <laughs> like this guy is like messed up. Just a whole other level. Yeah. 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 Uh, another well-known story from that time period was the December 1984. Uh, Vince Neil crashed his D Tommaso Pantera. It's a car. Uh, he crashed okay. it head-on with another vehicle, and they're on the way back from a liquor store. And it ended up killing his passenger, a guy named Razzle. He was the drummer from Hanoi Rocks. Okay. So uh, Vince was charged with the DUI and vehicular manslaughter, but Jeez. he only ended up serving 18 days in jail and paying out a civil suit. So uh, he essentially got away with, I wouldn't say murder, because he didn't kill him on purpose, but like he basically killed a guy and got away with it. <laughs> Jeez. It's yeah. uh, surprising how many stories like that are up there, like Danny Heatley. Yeah, NHL, yeah, I the NHL player. Yeah, just kind of like went to a different team, and now I'm yeah, sure it was worked out. But he kind of got off easy on that one. Well, when you got money for good lawyers, you can just kind of sweep things under the rug, I guess. Sometimes that's, that's true. Uh, too. Rich people um, don't go to jail. Yeah, at least not the same jails that other people go to. Uh, Crew's third album is called Theater of Pain. 
it was a shift away from the grittier like chains and leather imagery of showed at the devil towards a more androgynous spandex and glitter kind of glam metal direction okay uh, which was kind of popular at the time and they're they're kind of famous look yeah yeah i guess the teased hair and the makeup and the spandex yep. you know the whole the whole glam metal scene right mm-hmm. that was kind of their thing the uh the album was a commercial success it hits like uh smoking in the boys room and home sweet home oh yeah yeah okay i know that in an interview with vince neal he mentions that he didn't think the album as a whole was very good so he wasn't very happy with it i guess but i mean okay. you look at the first two albums and to me i can kind of see where he's coming from yeah uh, so, i mean it's got some it's got some songs I, I really enjoy but as an album it's uh it doesn't it's not up to par with the first two right Right. But uh, this was actually the first Motley Crue album I owned, so I, I do have a bit of a soft spot for it. Okay. Uh, in February 1986, Nikki Six suffered a heroin overdose, and the uh, the dealer that sold him the drugs threw him in a dumpster, thinking he was dead. Oh, <laughs> and he ended up like waking up in this dumpster. But it, it, it inspired a song on their album "Girls, Girls, Girls" called "Dancing on Glass," like later on. Uh, so, do you think he used the same dealer afterwards? I would assume not. <laughs> I, I would bet the guy probably didn't want to be found after that. <laughs> yeah, very true. So the album Girls, Girls, Girls came out in May 1987, and it ended up at number two on the Billboard chart behind Whitney Houston's record Whitney. And wow. uh, Nikki Six recounts that they were told their record was outselling everybody. But uh, at the time, the music industry, they relied on retail to report their top-selling bands. Uh, so they didn't have, like, SoundScan or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was all, it was all like, kind of manual, you know? And, yeah. uh Houston's label allegedly flew all the record retail heads out to Australia for a huge party, and Six believes they're influenced on reporting Houston's album at number one. Uh, that so, makes a lot of sense. And not, yeah, not entirely different than how things are done now. I know that a lot of New York Times bestsellers, if someone has the money to just buy a ton of copies and just send them out for free, it yeah, just, they kind of fix the numbers, right? Yeah, exactly. The amount of sales just put them on the bestsellers list, even though they yeah. bought them all themselves to hang out to their friends. So yeah, but I guess once it's on a oh, bestsellers list, then you're you're hoping that then people yep. will actually start buying it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then they see, oh my god, everyone's buying this. But I guess yeah. similar thing thing to that. You got the money behind you. You can just yeah. fudge and the to numbers. Be, to be fair, like Nikki Six does admit that Whitney Houston is very talented. He just feels yeah. that he, he can't he, he couldn't understand how their album didn't wasn't number one because they were selling so much at the time. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. But uh, the, the album Girls, 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 it's uh, got some great memorable tracks, including the opening song uh, Wild Side, which I'm sure you've heard. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that one. Uh, although I personally find the album as a whole uh, a bit weak compared to the previous albums. It's like it got a lot of filler tracks in my mind. Right. I mean, it did really well, but I, I find it to be overall the weakest so far out of the four albums. Okay. So a lot of people would probably disagree and say Theater of Pain would be weaker, but Song for song, I feel it's slightly stronger, but probably pretty close. Uh, I don't know enough to like disagree with you, so I'll go with you. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to listen to them. I, I, like, yeah. I'd say that the memorable, the memorable songs from Girls, Girls, Girls would be like more memorable, I guess, except for maybe Home Sweet Home. So that might be why a lot of people would rank that one higher. Okay. Because Wild Side and Girls, Girls, Girls are pretty well-known songs. Yeah. So I, I found this bizarre story. Uh, from a guy named Matthew Tripp, who apparently he claimed he impersonated Nikki Six for two years in between 1983 and 1985 after Six had been seriously injured in a car crash. Mm-hmm. So there's, I found this lo- there's this long interview with this guy from 
1988 issue of Kerrang! magazine, and he had filed a lawsuit against the band claiming he was owed royalties from a bunch of their songs he allegedly wrote. So it's pretty crazy. So either either it happened or this guy's like batshit insane. <laughs> but, yeah, you never know because lies usually have too many details to be believable. But also that's a really long time period that you wouldn't just forget about. So yeah, yeah. interesting. And the, uh, the, the interview from Kerrang! is actually available online if anyone wants to check it out. Um, I can remind me, I'll put a, maybe I'll put a link up on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting that. anyway to, to read through it. Yeah. Um, Cause he does have a lot of details in there that you almost believable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but he eventually dropped the suit years later. Okay. So, uh, in 1987, six suffered another heroin overdose. And that's the infamous one that we were talking about earlier that inspired the song kickstart my heart. Right. Uh, and he was declared clinically dead, but revived by a paramedic with two shots of adrenaline. That's, that's insane. Yeah, literally kickstarted his heart. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> Those guys were so used to abusing their bodies, it was probably just like another day, right? Like, just keep yeah. going. <laughs> Can you believe uh, I died? All right, anyways, let's go. Let's write a couple songs on it, write a book, and... <laughs> do some more heroin. Yeah, because, yeah, he wrote that Heroin Diaries book. Uh, I think that was more later on when he was getting clean mm-hmm. from heroin, but, he, yeah, there's a, a book he wrote called Heroin Diaries where he, like, documents his drug addiction and recovery and stuff. That's really interesting. But, have to check uh, that one out yeah i haven't read that one actually there, there's a few books uh i wouldn't mind reading the dirt again actually and that heroin diaries would probably be an interesting read as well mm-hmm. uh dr feelgood their f- i guess fifth album at this point it was released in august 1989 and it was the band's only album to hit number one on the billboard 200 chart so okay. critically uh critically dr feelgood was viewed by many fans and critics as motley Crue's best album and uh, the band had all entered drug rehab before recording and it likely helped with the higher musical quality of the album compared to previous ones because they were focused and clean. Uh, it's it's not my favorite album of theirs, but there's some great, although overplayed songs like the, the title track and Kickstart My Heart. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they are, they, I'll admit they're great songs. They just they play them on the radio so freaking much, right? They get played a lot, yeah. Um, I have to admit the production from Bob Rock is really top notch. Like the, the album sounds great. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all the guys in the band sound great in it. And Bob Rock would soon after go on to ruin Metallica. <laughs> if if you know what I'm talking about. Is he? Did he produce what everything Black after Black Album? Oh, he, he produced, he produced Black, Black Album. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I say that kind of jokingly because I, I mean, I I grew up listening to the Black Album, so I do have a soft spot for that as well but it's like yeah. far from my favorite Metallica it was album. the beginning it, of the, the downslide yeah well i mean commercially it was the beginning of like them being huge right yeah, but artistically for me it was it was the other other way yeah uh, i'm sure a lot of like metal heads will agree with me not everybody like you know people that became fans after that wouldn't agree maybe right but yeah uh, anyway <laughs> just thought i'd mention that bob rock produced dr feel good as well Okay. So uh, there's actually a funny quote from Martin Popoff in uh, in his Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal, where he describes uh, for this time period, uh, Doctor Feelgood, he describes Motley Crue as a really dumb band trying really hard. <laughs> that was, uh, uh, would you say he's wrong though? <laughs> no, no, it's like very spot on. <laughs> like I, I really, uh, I really enjoyed that quote because it's like, it's <laughs> it's kind of true. <laughs> he's not he's not saying that they're failing. No, they they worked. I mean, it's a, it, it's a great sounding album. It's got a few. It's got a couple of really good songs. And honestly, even though there are some songs in that album that I would say are kind of filler songs, they still sound great. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's probably their most accomplished album in a way. Yeah. Uh, so after Dr. Feelgood, Vince Neil left, and the uh, the band made an album with a singer named John Karabi, and it, it was a change of pace musically, and it wasn't commercially successful. Uh, it was kind of hard to sell the band, I guess, without Vince Neil because he was so mm -hmm. uh, so integral to it. To their sound. Yeah, sort of uh, the iconic front man a little bit. Yeah, people people just weren't fans weren't really embracing that a change like that, right? But uh, Vince would rejoin the band a few years later, and they've uh, since released a few more studio albums and uh, also embarked on what was supposed to be their final tour, like what it seems like several times. <laughs> they've actually just had like, like uh, the Stones. Yeah, they, they, I think they literally named one of their tours like their final tour. Their like whatever it was, it was supposed to be like <laughs> by name. It was their last tour, and that was like five years ago. And I just saw them like, <laughs> like right, a, yeah. a month ago. They're, just, they're still going. Yeah, but uh, that that John Karabi album is actually pretty good. It's just not really typical Motley Crue. But yeah, it, it, it was it, such a change of pace that it probably just didn't jive. Yeah, they, people wanted routine. They kind of slowed it down and grunged it up a bit, but it's uh, right. it actually. A, a, a pretty solid album. I would recommend people checking it out just for just a, it's just a good rock album. Anyway, right, that makes sense. Yeah, so I mean, I, I pretty much just wanted to cover their history up until basically Doctor Feelgood. So uh, okay. that's pretty much it. I mean, I highly recommend checking out read read the dirt, watch the movie, uh, maybe check out the Heroin Diaries. You get, you get a little more in depth of some of this stuff. But really, like Motley Crue's importance to to the scene, to like to glam metal and to, to rock in general. Like it's been a long time since their heyday, but they uh, pretty much all the way through the eighties, they're, they're huge, right? Like they, uh, they created a lot of exposure for, for that type of music for, for hard rock and metal. Yeah. So, and, uh, and, and glam metal in particular. So uh, yeah, they're, they're just, they're, they're a really important band historically anyway. So. Yeah. No, that, that yeah. makes sense. Sometimes yeah. it's just the, like the presence you give off to like that, that can yeah. sell it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was the music was secondary to a lot of it, right? A lot of it was just like the look, right? The, mm -hmm. the scene, the, the aesthetics of it. Yeah, well, you can say that about a number of bands too. Where it's um, like we went over Alice Cooper, and they has some amazing songs, especially like Alice Cooper the band. But mm -hmm. uh, it, he had such an amazing live show. Yeah, like the theatrics so early made them stand out. Right? But, I mean, yeah. coupled with good music as well. Obviously. Yeah, they've they've got sweet songs, but like the yeah. the fact that their live show is so insane definitely helps and i mean motley Crue's like i mean their stage shows were pretty energetic but it was it was their offstage antics i guess that really got them yeah they're really notorious at the time for definitely being ridiculous partiers and like very debauched you know yeah yeah like they, they can barely reproduce their sound from the 80s now but they're still filling up like football stadiums right totally um all right yeah let's uh get to the workout playlist i guess all right yeah let's do the playlist i ain't got time to bleed Let's put a smile on that face. I took the wrong week to quit drinking. All right, the uh, the first song we're just gonna go straight to the first song off the first album, okay. uh, Live Wire. So it's the first song off of Too Fast for Love from 1981. This is one of like the simplest, most effective opening riffs to like a hard rock song that in my mind uh the song kicks off like fast and loose and it's almost right. like that whole album there especially in, in live wire their their instruments all seem like a little out of time with each other but it's okay. like it's it's almost like it's done like perfectly imperfect mm -hmm. yeah like i said before i'm a big fan of uh rough cuts because it almost sounds more real so 
And then, uh, you know, Vince Neil's got a, maybe not the most powerful voice in the best range, but he's got a really distinctive voice. So it, it really right. adds to it. it. It really rounds out the, the band's sound for sure. Cool. All right. I'm going to check it out now. That bass line is absolutely killer. Yeah. Like, it drives the whole song. That is amazing. I really, really like that. That's a, great, <laughs> it's a great song. It's like one of the best. That's terrific. Uh, the, the first song on their first album, and they're all like kids. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. You can tell like Vince Neil sounds young, but it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's a, it's a great high energy song, man. It is like the, you can see how it sounds kind of loose and raw. You know, like I just love that. I love that dynamic of that, that whole album. But it doesn't even sound as rough as I thought it was going to sound. It's, no, um, but this is probably the yeah. this is probably the remastered one, right? Like, right. Yeah, so that, that's probably the version that we're listening to. But it's it's still pretty rough. Like, it's cool. No, it's good. It's it's really good. All right, song two. We'll do another song from Too Fast for Love. It's called "Take Me to the Top," and yeah. uh, it starts out faster, and then it kind of slows down into the verse, and then it kicks it up again for the chorus. And just the the timing and the tone of Vince's vocals in the song really do it for me. And uh, Mick makes this cool effect with his guitar leading into the verse that I really like too. And I, I don't know what it's called. You might have a... <laughs> might be a fill? I don't I'm know. Take, sure. take a listen to, and tell me if you can pick it out. Okay. All right. Uh, take me to the top. Take me to the top. Are you talking about the the uh, effect on the guitar or the riff? The, like the effect on the guitar. I think that's. It sounds like uh, phalanger, if I'm remembering right, for effects. I don't know if it's phalanger or phalange. I know it's a setting on my amp, and it sounds like that. But it is really, really cool. I think Nicky Six is a genius, also, based on his <laughs> on his bass riffs, because he's um like it sounds like he's playing the complementary minor to a song that's in a major key if that makes sense and it sounds amazing okay yeah like i i when you when you mentioned the bass because i never really pay attention to the bass that much in a lot of the stuff unless i'm listening to like you know red Hot chili peppers or primus or something yeah. like really bass driven but because usually I, it's kind of mixed out too once you once you mentioned that I, I was listening to the bass line just in that in that song and it's like it's actually he's all over the place like he, yeah. he does some pretty crazy licks on his bass and, and i never even really noticed it before but especially in this album it's really it really stands out. All right, we're going to move on to uh, Shout at the Devil. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll do my favorite song off Shout at the Devil. It's called Bastard. It's okay. one of the heaviest Motley Crue songs, both sonically and lyrically. It's pretty pretty okay. dark. And uh, I just love the riff and, and like the, the attitude of it. And it's got a pretty sweet solo. So. All, right. All right. Bastard, Motley Crue.
a sweet, like heavy driving song. Uh, and this is, this isn't uh, an insult by any means. If I was to listen to that for the first time on my own, I'd probably think that seems like Andrew's kind of song. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely. Like, I mean, it's my one of my favorite Motley Crue songs, so yeah, yeah they wouldn't yeah. be insulted at all. That's, and yeah. also, this album covers because uh, it looks like a 1990s like hairdresser magazine cover. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> it's, Can you imagine how many cans of hairspray went into those dudes? <laughs> I know there's like a hole in the ozone just from this picture shoot alone. I feel like Mick didn't get enough lift on his hair. So. <laughs> is, he, is he bottom left there? Yeah, yeah. It looks like he's kind of dying. Um, I also yeah. got to say about Tommy Lee, um, he's not he's not like Neil Neil Peart or anything, right? Yeah. But he sounds like uh, Lars Ulrich if he was good. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. know I I know I rip on on Lars Ulrich a lot, but it's like he's got this simple driving beat that still manages to be kind of fresh instead of just like the yeah. same thing over and over. I again. think. Because Tommy Lee is like pretty tall and like rangy, and he like he hits the drums uh, okay. pretty freaking hard too. Like that makes sense. Like it kicks it up a notch. Yeah, no, whether definitely. Whether it's good or not, really yeah. drives it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, one more song from "Shout at the Devil." Uh, good. We have a song called "Red Hot." Part for the chorus for me, like it's another fast and heavy one. Like those are yeah. obviously my favorites, but <laughs> yeah, uh, nothing groundbreaking lyrically. Although that describes like most of Crew's stuff, I guess. But, <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. got a lot of energy. I think it's. I believe it's the first song on side B on the record. I mean, a lot of times I like to start out the uh, the B side with like a, a faster one, you know, a more high Fast energy song. song. Yeah, makes sense. All right, yeah. uh, Red Hot. That's just another song that's just all Nikki Six. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, actually, now and that, I really noticed a ton of drums at the start, right? Like the Tommy's mm-hmm. drums leading in are pretty cool too. Yeah, well, like right, right along with the with the drums, the bass is the whole way with it, yeah. and keeping up the beat too. It's it's almost like they have two drum kits going because like it's mm-hmm. so heavy. So heavy, yeah. Yeah, it's heavy and re- honestly really well mixed too because it works together very well. Yeah, the the, the this album is actually very well recorded especially i mean one of the things i like about the first album is how rough the recording sounded but like they really right. stepped it up a notch in recording quality for their second album i mean being on yeah. a bigger label obviously helped they had a lot more money to work with yeah totally all right it's uh, song five we're gonna do tonight yep. we need a lover from theater of pain from 1985 all right. uh, i think this is also the first song on b-side which for some reason, I always like the first song on B-side. <laughs> uh, it's got a great opening riff, and the uh, the opening line is, uh, I'm going to read the line. It's 90,000 screaming watts, honey dripping from her pot, fill the cup to the top tonight, <laughs> which is like, when the way the way it works into the song, it's like kind of awesome, but it's really gross when you think about it. Reading it separately. <laughs> yeah, like when you just read it out of context, it's like, uh, okay, it's kind of gross. But, uh, but it, if you listen to it in the song, though, it's... it's it, it's a pretty awesome like just the way the opening line like in the in the riff kind of work together right. it's i don't know i i really like that song and the, the theater of pain has kind of got a the recording's a little different it sounds a little tinny i guess compared yeah. to show to the devil but uh i think this is an underrated song like i it's one that they never play on the radio obviously and most people have probably never heard it uh, but right. i i really like it all Check right it out. Yes. let's do it tonight we need a lover motley crew 
you're right. If I didn't know the lyrics beforehand, I wouldn't even like think twice about it. But because I know what he's saying, <laughs> it made me it's feel kind cool. of icky starting yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it, I mean, it's good. I I've also noticed in that one, Nikki Six. Uh, I'm just gonna keep jumping back to to him. He kind of mm-hmm. jumps between harmonizing with the guitar and harmonizing with the beat of the drums, and it's uh, every single song I've listened to so far. Now that I know how much he's involved noticing yeah. how much he does with this part i don't really like i never really read much about him being like this amazing bassist but maybe he's you know high up there on people's lists i don't know maybe he's like underrated i, I don't know yeah. based on this he's got to be underrated like he's yeah. he's good i think maybe maybe his 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 role in the band maybe overshadows his bass playing abilities yeah i, I mean well, i just it, looked it up and there's a whole guitar world article about how he's the most underrated bass player ever so oh okay he's not doing solos or anything but everything he does uh yeah. it's just like the foundation of the song it seems yeah which i mean a, a really good bass player should be it's so yeah it's, it's fitting. like not everyone can do that yeah um we'll try i have a fairly lengthy workout playlist we'll try and get through this and uh okay yeah yeah we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes but uh That's we're gonna good. do another song from theater of pain called use it or lose it it's yeah. uh dumb lyrics but it's kind of a fun fast-paced guitar riff overall the kind of shitty production of the album is, is clear on the song but i like the energy and it's got a pretty decent solo by Mick Mars too. So Okay. Sweet. Use it or lose it. That is a pretty wicked solo. <laughs> I'll give you that. I think that might be one of Vince Neil's weaker songs. Just yeah, his, like lyrically or time. vocally. Yeah, vocally. Yeah, he sounds like he might have been strained when they were recording it or wasn't yeah. into the song. But that's well, that whole album is a little off. Uh, yeah, so it might just be the way they recorded it. And that was a like, great right after he like got in that car accident and stuff too, right? Right. So yeah, it makes sense. Definitely, it was definitely a rough time actually. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, okay, we're gonna move on to Girls, Girls, Girls. Uh, All right. The album. So w- okay. the first song is gonna be the first song on the album, Wild Side. Uh, it's probably my favorite song on the album, and one of my favorite Motley Crue songs. Okay. So uh, Wild Side is uh, it's got another wicked riff. Uh, the the vocals are pretty sharp from Vince, and uh, the, the lyrics aren't the dumbest. <laughs> right. And uh, Tommy's drumming really drives the song too. So sweet. Note that as well. All right, yeah, check this out. Wild side. I don't know why I was going into this one thinking, oh, I've never heard this song before. I have absolutely heard this song before. Like oh, yeah. You guys of- you guys might have played it on Q107. Like, it's, it's Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, um, I think they're hitting an anvil in that. It sounds like it, eh? Or a cowbell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a, maybe a cowbell. I'm just, <laughs> I hope it's an anvil because that'd be cooler. That'd be way cooler, yeah. <laughs> 
So I'm, I'm going to probably piss people off, but I'm not going to use Girls, Girls, Girls just because it's overplayed. I do love the song, and it's like the, probably the most popular song on that album. Uh, yeah. But I'm going to go to another song just that one people that, that people don't listen to very often just for variety's sake. I mean, I'm happy that you're not choosing that. I uh, I hear that song too much. Yeah, I just, I mean, it's a great song, but it's just, it's it's played on the radio all the time. So uh, yeah. we're going to do All in the Name of. It's, uh, it might also be the first song on the B-side. I'm not sure. It's pretty close to that anyway. But yeah, it's a, it's similar to Use It or Lose It, where it's kind of dumb lyrics, generic dumb <laughs> lyrics, but it's got a fun, fast pace. Yeah. Uh, pretty decent riff. And song quality-wise, I prefer the title track, but I just wanted something different. So Right. I gotcha. All right. All in the name of... Good song might be a felony uh yeah yeah don't pay too <laughs> close attention to the lyrics <laughs> it's like all right yeah this is pretty sweet sorry what was that <laughs> the, the, uh, i don't know it's uh, we're not gonna get too deep into that one <laughs> but, let's uh, not let's not dive into the origin of that song. let's just focus on the music <laughs> yeah. yeah no musically is sweet it's a good like it's almost uh kind of a rockabilly beat which is cool yeah yeah it's kind of got like a funky beat to it eh? like almost bluesy kind of yeah 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 a bit, bit, bit bluesy kind of riff yeah. musically love it let's go um <laughs> we'll get to number nine we're gonna do uh dr feelgood from the album dr feelgood from 1989 that's a classic it's, like i purposely tried to pick songs that weren't overplayed on rock radio but this is like easily one of the best songs on the album and one of their best songs so i mean it holds uh, up too so that's, yeah I think that's it's, fair. it's 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 good enough that i i still don't mind listening to it even though i've heard it like a million times yeah uh, yeah i would agree with you that's one of those for me too but it's got like a it's got a really catchy like offbeat kind of riff like a, like something kind of different yeah. you know like and uh it's it's just a really well crafted song and everyone in the band sounds great on it as mm-hmm. they do on pretty much that whole album but right it's, uh, yeah dr feelgood all right dr feelgood I know that song a lot better than the other ones. I was trying to focus on what Nikki Six was doing again. And yeah. God, it's so cool. He's like, in the, during the intro, he's syncing up with just the kicker, like the just the drum kick, which yeah. punctuates it a little bit more. And then as soon as the riff kicks in, he's playing like a different octave harmony with it. Yeah, Like it'll go up and it, he'll go down on the bass. And it's just, he's really like the foundation of the entire thing. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I'm really starting to pick out the the bass in the songs that I didn't yeah. really notice before until you started mentioning it. Like it's it's it is pretty cool to tell somebody does. There's actually if you go on Spotify, uh, there, there's like an extended version of the of the album, but it's got a few demo songs on it. 
And if okay. you listen to the Dr. Feelgood demo, instead of saying like he's the one they call it Dr. Feelgood, he says I'm the one they call it Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> it just it sounds so weird <laughs> listening to him change the lyrics like that. Especially so, when yeah. you're so used to it one way. Yeah, like I don't know if it's like better or worse, but just like I said, I'm so just, I'm so used to it being he's the one they call it. Like, it just sounds so wrong when they, when they yeah. change it. <laughs> it's like, just fundamentally different. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we'll do. We have to do Kickstart My Heart, obviously, because it's like yeah. their probably biggest song now i guess yeah. <laughs> um also from dr feel good from 1989 uh probably the most overplayed of their songs but <laughs> it's so good that i mean i i can't fault people for playing it all over the place because yeah it's just a, it's got a great build-up like really high energy song really catchy mm-hmm. uh i mean you obviously you know this one but you know give it a listen can i yeah definitely see, see if you can pick I... out any cool bass lines yeah again I'm, I'm just gonna focus on nikki six yeah. is doing all right kickstart my heart Weirdly enough, I think uh, I think Nikki Six takes a backseat on that one. I don't think he's yeah. doing too much. I think the, the riff is so good that you don't really need a, a bass to back it up. Yeah, the guitar certain. really does dominate that song. Eh? Yeah, like it still works, but I I yeah. feel like that must have been a decision of his. He's like, this doesn't yeah. need any more juice to it. And then the vocals it's, too, right? Like the, the chorus. Yeah, the vocals and the chorus. Yeah, exactly. Like Vince mm-hmm. Neil is putting on a performance with that. So I don't know if I meant if I mentioned this in previous episodes, but I saw Vince Neil play live at, at a bar called Cowboys here. Probably uh, must have been like 17 years ago or something. But he was playing solo, but he mostly played crew songs. I think he played a couple of his solo songs and a bunch of Motley Crue stuff. But they started playing "Kickstart My Heart" and his guitarist, like you know that, that guitar part at the start. I don't know what he's doing. Something with his like his whammy bar, right? Like yeah, whatever that, yeah. that, that sound is, but his guitar screwed it up, like the opening to the song, and he just got pissed off and they didn't play the song. He's like, We're not playing it. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, like uh, <laughs> the crowd was all waiting for it. It was like the song that everyone wanted to hear the most. And he uh, just got like yeah, he just like lost his shit that his guitars fucked it up and <laughs> just didn't play it. Oh man. That's yeah. sad. <laughs> okay, uh we're gonna I'm gonna throw one more curveball in here just because I want to. <laughs> and, uh, we're gonna do one more song. It's uh, it's called "Smoke the Sky." It's not Vince Neil. It's off their self-titled album they did with John Karabi. Okay. Uh, it, it's my favorite song off the John Karabi album. The, the guitars are really cool in it, and Karabi's got a a really unique raspy vocal style, which is like a far cry from Vince Neil. But for right. this song and this album, it like fits perfectly, and it definitely okay. belongs on a workout playlist. It's been on my workout playlist for like twenty years, so well, twenty five like years actually. Songs. I feel like most of these mm-hmm. songs are just made for it. Yeah. <laughs> like made oh, for yeah, working for sure. out too. Just heavy beat. Yeah, it's it's oh it's got a it's got an awesome guitar, like great riff. Uh, mm-hmm. Check it out. You probably never heard it before because I'll probably never play this on Canadian rock radio, but yeah. I was also gonna oh. say, like, I what, what was the name again? <laughs> I kind of missed smoke, it because it's not smoke the I sky. Heard. Smoke the sky, okay. All right, smoke the sky.
It is a lot heavier. I really like that though. That's uh, but I understand. I think why they didn't sell as well because yeah. it doesn't really sound like Molly Crew. It's it's definitely it's- a big change from their their previous stuff. And I, yeah, I could see why their their fan base that was with them from the other stuff like didn't embrace it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's great. It's a great song. And the whole album is actually pretty solid. Like it's 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 that's one of the yeah. faster songs probably. Like the rest, the rest of, the rest of the albums like it's heavy and like really crunching, but like not very fast. Like it's it's a definitely yeah. a different kind of album. And I think they were probably adapting to you know grunge music being big at the time and kind of getting yeah, away from the totally. hair metal sound. It obviously didn't work for them commercially, but I, I think like artistically, it's it's actually a, a good album, and I, I'd recommend people checking it out. Just go in there not thinking of it like being a typical Motley Crue album, right? Yeah. Also, I think. Yeah. Uh, I have some real mixed feelings about Velvet Revolver. I don't know how you feel about them. Mm. I think they ripped that song off. I yeah, think, uh, like I think Velvet Revolver ripped off Motley Crue because it sounds like Slither, but better. Yeah, like they stole the the riff. Yeah, like even the build up and then the riff, like it just sounds like Slither, but uh, as a good song, I don't like Velvet Revolver very much. I, you know what they had? A, I, I got their first <laughs> album. How many albums did they put out? Uh, t- I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, they put I remember it. having the first one, I think. Um, it had like Dirty Little Thing, I think, was on it. Like, I, I did like a few of the songs on it, but uh, I, I mean, they're not my favorite band. So I'm just listening to Slither. But... Yeah, you have ah. to go into like about 30 seconds, but it sounds very, very close, I think. It, immediately uh, listening to it, even the first few, I already like Smoke the Sky better. But... Yeah, no, it's just a better version. Yeah, or I guess Slither's a worse version because it came last. Like way later, it's ten years later. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, so, but yeah, that's the. Uh, I know it's a lengthy workout playlist, but we got through it. Oh, and, sweet uh, though! I think it might be the best to work out to so far because Motley Crue seems like completely geared towards that. Yeah, well, I picked I picked all high energy songs. Like I didn't pick any of their ballads, like No Home Sweet Home or nothing. Like not like they weren't good songs, but to me, yeah, there's other songs that belong in the workout playlist. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, if that's if that's it, I guess uh, they're touring right now still, so you can see them. Just Vince Neil might be a little bit uh, older. His yeah, I mean, just, a little just aged now. Going and expecting that Vince Neil's not going to put on like a, the vocal performance of a lifetime or anything, but it's still a fun show. Like it's still an experience, yeah. right? Still recommend it. Mm-hmm. Especially if they're touring with still was it uh, Joan Jett, Poison, Def Leppard? That's a, that's a hell of a lineup to see. Yeah. And, and everyone else put on a great show. Like, uh, Brett Michaels from Poison is like, the guy's got so much energy for, and he's like, you know, they're almost the same age as the guys from Motley Crue. And he's like, he's just running around and jumping and like really engaging with the crowd. Like he's really good. Yeah. That's and, sweet. Uh, yeah. It was, it was fun. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that's going to do it for this episode of the heavy. So thanks for joining us again for season three, episode one. You can see the show notes of the complete list of songs you heard us talk about in this episode. And then we have a link to that playlist we were just talking about with all the songs from this season. So it's going to be small for now, but we'll keep adding on that. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please tell a friend. Leave us a rating on iTunes. That'll help out a lot. Our website is theheavy.podbean.com. And you can email us at theheavypod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at The Heavy Pod on all those, too. And our show is edited by Ian Sutherland. And Andrew does all the research. Our brother, Rob, designed our logo. Our theme song is Stallions of the Highway by Savage Blade. And I'm your host, Don Sutherland. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again in two weeks. Later.